Are you a fire instructor or training officer eager to elevate your career? Inside the Modern Fire Instructor Pro Membership, you can leap beyond department limitations. Inside MFI Pro, you'll immerse yourself with monthly expert-led training, live bi-weekly Zoom Q&As, and an exclusive community of like-minded peers. You'll also have 24-7 access to our extensive and purpose-built resource library to help you stay ahead of your peers. Ready to ignite your full potential? To learn more, click the link in the show notes or head to trymfi.com. That's trymfi.com to begin your journey right now with a seven-day free trial. And when you sign up, make sure to use coupon code PODCAST to receive 40% off your monthly membership forever when you decide to stay. Secure your future, invest in yourself, and invest in MFI Pro at trymfi.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Modern Fire Instructor Podcast, where we tap into the wisdom of experienced professionals on topics like fire training, leadership, and learning. I'm your host, Rob Candle. Join me as we uncover actionable insights that you can use to grow your skills as an instructor, make you more effective, and help you leave a lasting impact on those you serve. Today, my guest is Ed Harton, Fire Chief of East County Fire and Rescue in Camas, Washington. Ed has 49 years of career firefighting experience and previously served as the Chief Training Officer in Gresham, Oregon. He has completed a Bachelor's in Fire Science Administration and a Master's in Education. His publications include co-authoring 3D firefighting, training techniques and tactics, as well as contributing to the fire behavior chapter in IFSTA Essentials. As an instructor, he has delivered training on fire behavior and firefighting tactics throughout North America, as well as in Australia, Europe, and South America. Inside today's episode, how a backdraft led to a passion for fire behavior knowledge, defining coordinated ventilation, and live fire instruction best practices. Let's get curious and dive in. I'd like to start today just by uh, uh, talking to you about the significance of the uh, the work being done by the UL. And I think that you've got a, a unique perspective for a couple of reasons. One, I know that you've participated uh, in that project, and I'd like to hear a little bit about your experience um, in that role. But then also just the fact that you you're, the breadth of your experience over I believe uh, your bio on, on your department website says 48 years career in the fire service. About 49 now. 49, yeah. So your, your experience um, is really, it's really quite unusual to see that much experience. You've seen a lot of change in the fire service. And so I think just based on your experience as a firefighter, but also uh, working in the UL, if you could just speak about the, um, the the impact that the research that the UL is doing is having on the fire service and, and what kind of changes that might be leading to that you've seen. Okay. I can, uh, I can certainly give that a, give that a try. Um, I, I guess the, 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 the first part is, is kind of the, how did I, how did I get connected with, with, with UL and, and, uh, Again, when I when I became involved with uh, with UL was with the uh, uh, the first uh, ventilation study, which was uh, um, uh, looking at horizontal ventilation in residential structures. 
and uh, it was uh, it was it was kind of interesting because back then uh, UL consisted of Steve or ULFSRI consisted of Steve Kerber and an administrative and assist, administrative assistant, uh, and uh, now he has uh, a significant number of staff. I don't I don't know what the what the count is today, but uh, but it's probably in the, the you know the twenty to thirty range. Uh, and they've got lots of projects going on and so forth. And back then it was one project at a time. Uh, and, uh, some of the same folks are involved as technical panels on the first several projects. And, and, and those individuals eventually became, uh, ULFSRI's advisory board. Uh, and we stayed, we stayed plugged in, uh, connected to the, connected to the projects and still, uh, uh, participated in in uh, observation of, of of some of the experiments and so forth, and then uh, finally uh, uh, last last August uh, there was a group of us that were uh, uh, kind of moved to emeritus status on the board because we'd been on the uh, uh, on the advisory board for over ten years, and they wanted to they wanted to create some some additional engagement across the across the fire service. So that's that's kind of kind of the the history of my time with UL. How I how I think I ended up getting getting connected with them uh, uh, was when uh, Steve Kerber and Dan Madrakowski worked at NIST. Uh, I had gotten to know Dan. Uh, don't even remember where the first place I ever met him was, but uh, when I when I came back from my uh, my first trip to Sweden, he asked me to come by uh, the lab, and uh, he was going to was going to give me the the fifty cent tour and wanted me to talk a little bit about things that I had learned in my uh, in my trip to Sweden and so forth. And uh, Steve Kerber was there, and I got to and I and I got to meet him. So we we kind of we kind of maintained a, a connection, and I was I was always uh, kind of digging into what what NIST was up was up to, uh, even though that was that was a little bit less in the beginning was a little bit less with the fire service. Occasionally they were doing things for the fire service, and then it began to become a little bit more uh, connected, uh, looking at wind driven fires and so forth, and uh, and positive pressure and a, and, and a number of a number of other uh, number of other things. Um, and you know when I started to to think about that. Um, you know, how, how that was going to, uh, uh, inform our work. I kind of thought back to the, thought back to the, to the beginning. And again, I, I have been doing this for 49 years. Uh, really my fire service career, uh, probably in a manner of speaking spans 69 years because, uh, I went to my first fire when I was six weeks old. I had no choice. My dad was a fire chief. Uh, my mom put me in the baby carriage and wheeled me down the street to a job that my dad was working at, and uh, my name got entered in the uh, in the roster of members in attendance. Uh, so that was that was the first recorded instance of my going to a to a fire, and uh, again that was that was back in the 1950s. So. So as I as I started to hang out with my dad and and uh, go to training and go to go to incidents with him and so forth and watch what was going on and, and ask him a lot of questions, uh, that's where I began to build my my base of understanding about you know how fires in buildings work and the like. And uh, uh, I got involved in a cadet program when I was in was in high school and kind of continued that continued that connection. Um, and when I started on the job, there was really not a not a tremendous amount of of science in our in, in our 
training and education. Uh, I, uh, uh, I was, was enrolled in a local um, community college and fire science program. And it was a little bit there, but it was really was, was, was not particularly in depth. And uh, when I went to the fire academy as a recruit, we had one guy that was kind of science oriented and he, uh, he was the guy that had the Carmody kit and would do, uh, various tabletop demonstrations illustrating, uh, fire phenomena and so forth. And, and that kind of piqued my interest. I was really kind of, kind of curious about that. And after graduating from recruit school and becoming an, an instructor, I get recruited shortly after I finished the academy to come back and uh, uh, begin teaching at the fire academy uh, as an apprentice. And uh, uh, after I had been teaching for a while, I get involved in doing recruit training and had the experience of getting blown out of a building by a backdraft uh, during an acquired structure burn with a recruit class. And that, uh, no pun intended, ignited my passion for understanding fire behavior in buildings because there were some what could be considered classic signs of, of, of backdraft, uh, even as reported in, in the meager literature back then of, of you know, yellow smoke, um, um, a, 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 a pulsing air track, although we didn't call it that back then, um, uh, and, and so forth. And nobody recognized what was going on. And I said, well, you know, what's up with this? So that kind of focused me on on making sense out of what was going on in the in the fire environment, and we we burned a lot of buildings back then as a part of as a part of recruit training. Uh, pretty much every class had a, had at least one acquired structure burn. So we were we were we were doing a lot of uh, we were doing a lot of burning and making sense out of out of things that we were seeing. But again, it was predominantly with, predominantly with uh, legacy fuels, you know, or straw and pallets and that, and, and that kind of thing. Even back then. Uh, so as I started to, to, to look at the difference between that and the difference in, in fires that we were seeing on the fire ground, it was like, Hey, wait a minute, there's a gap. There's something, there's something going on here. And I don't think we, the big, we of the fire service was recognizing the changes in the, the changes in the fire environment, uh, with changing fuels. Although there was a, there was a program at the, the, the Massachusetts state fire Academy on plastics, uh, and that was kind of like a big deal back, back, back then in the early seventies. Hey, there's all these plastics and they're making this really toxic smoke and a little bit about the fire behavior piece, but not quite as much as the, as there might've been. So, um, as I began to dig into this more and, and, and read a lot and got, uh, the opportunity to, to, to go to Sweden and, and, uh, and, and kind of see what they are up to with, with fire behavior training. I came back and, it, and, and it was, it was sort of a life, life changing event. And that was about the same time that, that, that NIST was really getting involved in doing some things. And they had done some fire modeling of line of duty deaths with, with, with Cherry Road and so forth. And, and, uh, so I started to dig into that stuff a little bit and to blog about that. And, and again, I think that's what, that's what ended up with my getting a, a connection with ULFSRI at the, at the very, very beginning. So as we, as, as we look at, at the impact of that and, and, and how that's influenced the fire service and maybe how it will continue to influence the fire service is that, um, when we were doing the ventilation experiments, both horizontal and vertical, uh, it was kind of interesting because uh, uh, we're sitting with a with a technical panel and we're talking about experiments and what, how we how we think things are going to go. And and uh, 
there was a lot of folks in the room that thought that, uh, you know, if, if we, if we open this place up, we ventilate vigorously, things are going to get better. And, uh, there were two of us in, in the room in the horizontal, uh, experiments, myself and, uh, and Stefan Svensson from Sweden. And, and, and we were kind of looking at each other and saying, uh, no, that's not what's going to happen. And lo and behold, uh, ventilation absent, uh, application of water for fire control made things worse. Uh, and so then there was people that were saying, well, that's cause it was horizontal ventilation. If it was vertical ventilation, it would have been different. And we did the vertical ventilation study. And, uh, there were some guys, particularly guys from the West coast that thought vertical ventilation was just going to solve the problem and everything was going to get better. And lo and behold, absent the application of water, uh, vertical ventilation made things worse. And not only did it make it worse, but it made it worse more quickly than horizontal ventilation, uh, because vertical ventilation is more efficient. Well, it's, it was more efficient at making the fire bigger. Now, that, that, that said, that was absent the application of water. So that was one of the, one of the criticisms early on in, in, in UL's research as well, that, you know, that they're not doing it the way we would do it on the fire ground. We would do these things together and we, you know, we should change three or four things at once. And, and part of the process of discovery for the tech panels was to figure out how does science work that, no, you can't change everything because if you change everything every time, then, then you can't replicate, you can't identify causal factors and so forth. So, uh, that took a that took a little bit of uh, that took a little bit of doing as we as we started to look at that. But we discovered some interesting things. One of them is is that maybe it makes sense to not open up until we get water on the fire, and started to define what does coordinated mean. And uh, uh, first time I, I heard somebody really really state that clearly was uh, uh, George Healy from FDNY, and and uh, I think it was a. At, at FDIC, and uh, he was presenting, and he and he said it's likely that coordination means first you put water on the fire and then you ventilate, because it's really hard to get those close enough together that it works if you don't do one first and then the other. I mean, you could do them at the same time. You could do ventilation a little bit ahead of, of, of application of water, but that assumes that you have really good coordination on the fire gun, which oftentimes is is not going to be the case. So um, that became kind of interesting. And then, and then we discovered that, you know, if you close the door, things kind of settle down a little bit. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we would arrive and the citizens would run out and left the door open. And, and we found that, no, if you close the door and you shut off the air supply, that slows things down and buys us a little bit of time to do, uh, to, to do, do some other work. And I know when I when I introduced that in my in my own agency, uh, that there was a little bit of you want us to do what? Uh, and it took a little while for us to, to begin to build that understanding of, hey, this is what's going on. This is what a ventilation limited fire was. And when, when I first started uh, having those conversations back in the back in the mid 2000s, uh, before we had done a lot of this research, uh, people were quite confused about that. That was not part of the common vernacular in the fire service, a ventilation limited fire and, and uh, uh, the concept of closing the door. While we told citizens to do that, to, to limit fire spread, we weren't necessarily thinking about it in, in terms of, of heat release rate and oxygen consumption. Uh, these concepts were not 
not again part of the part part of the common language of firefighters. We didn't think about them a whole lot. We the big we. Um, I got involved in in uh, uh, as a member of the um, uh, validation committee for the fifth and the sixth edition of Essentials and uh, Essentials of Firefighting for MISTA. And when we tried to start introducing some of the science of of fire behavior, Dan Madrikowski and I. It was very, very difficult. People were very resistant to to increasing the science content, and I think a lot of that was was not so much that the students couldn't understand it, but but we we hadn't yet built the understanding of the people that were teaching uh, uh, of some of these some of these concepts. And and uh, I know the first time that that Steve Kerber talked about, or either Steve or Dan talked about uh, fire science. And fire dynamics at FDIC, there was there was you know five or six people in the room, and within several years after you all's uh, beginning work on this, uh, anytime they were speaking on fire dynamics, uh, the room was full, and and another year later it was the big room, and that was full. So I think we've seen a kind of a sea change in in. Uh, understanding of of the importance of of fire dynamics and 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 how things work, um, but that said, um, while we've learned a lot, there's still a lot of other things that we don't know, and I think one of the limitations of of the work that that UL has done is is in some cases they focus on what it is that we already do, uh, and uh, and and how we can make that work better, which that's good. But you can't you can't necessarily say, oh, this is best if you didn't try the other things. So that's another that's another piece of the puzzle. So I think in some areas we've gone down a we've gone down a particular path and said, okay, well, you know, here's how we here here's how we do what we do better. Uh, and and maybe haven't looked at some of the other things, or haven't looked at the other things with quite as much rigor as, as we might. And again, part of that is is that there's only a limited amount of funding. Uh, doing full scale fire tests is expensive, uh, and uh, uh, in in some respects, I think tech panels have have a bias towards well, what we do works, so we want to understand it better, and and uh, and, and maybe a little bit of reluctance to, to, to throw something in there that, that, that might contradict what it is that, that we believe, we believe to be true. Doesn't diminish the value of the work. It's tremendous. Um, but you find what you look for and you don't find things that are in other places. So that's, that, that's kind of a, a kind of a nutshell look at, at my experience with, uh, my experience with UL. I'm reminded of the story where the guy's looking for his car keys underneath the, uh, at night he's lost his car keys and he's looking for them underneath where the, the single lamp post is. Yeah. That's not where he thought he lost them, but that's where he can see good, you know? Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're looking in a specific area. You mentioned two things that I wanted to follow up on, on that answer. And one is just to, just to note that I was really, um, interested in your definition of coordinated ventilation, because in my experience, um, I, I felt like that term gets thrown around loosely, you know, and it's very easy to say, well, coordinated ventilation, but much, uh, I didn't ever really hear anybody define what that is, you know, and I can yeah, remember. It was, the- it, was kind of, it was kind of interesting. If you go back and look at, at, 
uh, fire behavior related line of duty deaths and the real, and their related NIOSH reports. In almost all of the NIOSH reports, it says that fire attack and ventilation must be closely coordinated, but they never said what it was. Right. And, and I think as we, as we worked our way, uh, through the ventilation experiments and on into the, to the, to the fire attack experiments and the coordinated attack experiments, we began to figure out a little bit more about this. And one of the, one of the things that I think is the, the reason for some of this confusion is if you go back and you look at legacy fires and, and you, you look at where many of our strategies and tactics and, and, and task level actions come from, Probably one of the first books that was written specifically uh, about firefighting tactics was written by Lloyd Lehman in the 40s. Uh, and the, the, he, he then rewrote that after he wrote Attacking and Extinguishing Interior Fires. Uh, much of it remained the same, but there was a whole bunch of indirect, ta- indirect attack stuff that found their way in. But when you, uh, when you look at that and then you read uh, books about firefighting tactics that had a big influence, whether it be, uh, Clark's book or Freed's book. Um, those are written by guys that were fighting fires in the, in the 1950s and maybe in the 1960s legacy fires. And if we go back and we look at a, if we look at a, a fire in a, a room and contents fire in a, in a living room, with legacy furnishings in, in a in a legacy highly compartmented uh, house like I grew up in, uh, if you got there and you vigorously ventilated and you took the windows in the living room or you 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 did some other sort of ventilation tactic to dramatically increase the ventilation, it would have slowed progression to flashover because you had a fuel limited fire and you increased ventilation to it, which is removing. Uh, removing heat from that environment and and s- slowing that progression. So that made sense. When you looked at what coordination was defined as back in that time, whether you look in Clark's book or Freed's book, the yellow book or the orange book, as I used to think of them, um, uh, you know, it said charged hose lines must be in place before ventilating. Well, it didn't say, well, in place where? In place at the front door, in place inside the building, and and again, I think maybe they thought that was self-evident. And if it was a house fire, it was probably out front at the door. You were ready to go in and go to work. Uh, and maybe if it was in a on an upper story of a building, maybe it was in the stairwell making their way to the fire floor. But hose lines were in place because the time between when you ventilated and and conditions would get worse, most of the time was going to be a while. Pretty forgiving. So coordination didn't need to be quite so tight. It could be quite a bit, quite a bit looser. But in today's fire environment, where inside of a couple of minutes in a, in a typical single family home, we now no longer have a fuel limited fire. We've got a ventilation limited fire, and any increase in ventilation is going to increase the heat release rate and is going to make things worse. So now, if we're going to ventilate ahead of fire control. It can only be, you know, an instant before then. It can't. It can't be minutes. 
You know, it can't be, oh, well, the, the, the engine get hung up and they had to, you know, they had to do some work to get their, to get their line into, in, into, the, into the fire area and begin to apply water. You don't have that time. So that, that requirement for coordination has gotten closer and closer and closer. And in a lot of respects, that's, that's pretty difficult. Um, now, if you have highly disciplined crews and you have an adequate amount of resources to be able to do multiple things at the same time, you may be able to get away with that. If you're like most of the United States and you don't have a lot of resources and maybe at the beginning of the incident you can only do one thing at a time, that one thing is probably going to have to be water on the fire. And thinking about how do you manage the airflow so that you don't inadvertently make things worse. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the second uh, follow-up that I wanted to ask is you mentioned Sweden being, your trip to Sweden being, a, uh, I think you said, a life-changing event or career-changing oh, yeah. event. Can you yeah, talk a little bit about cool. that? Sure. Um uh, at the time, I was working for Gresham Fire and Emergency Services in Gresham, Gresham Oregon. And uh, one evening, I was watching the, the Discovery Channel, and there was a show called Under Fire. And it was about firefighting in Sweden, and it was being narrated by an English guy named John Taylor. And uh, I was kind of fascinated because there were some things that the Swedes were doing, which looked vaguely familiar. I mean, some of it was very familiar. They were wearing protective clothing and breathing apparatus. And they were going inside and using hose and, and so forth. But some of the things that they were doing to control the fire environment, some of them looked a little bit, I'd learned a little bit about that back when I worked in Massachusetts, uh, but I hadn't heard it anywhere else um, about applying, applying water with a, with a fog pattern into the upper atmosphere to cool things, to cool things down. And what I had learned is you did that to, to extinguish rollover and they were doing it into the smoke, which that was sort of an alien concept to me. And so that's pretty interesting. So I had been having some conversations with a, a guy who's retired from the London fire brigade named Paul Grimwood. And uh, emailing back and forth of them, this is sort of at the beginning of, of, of email for me and so forth. So that was sort of a novel thing. But I was emailing back and forth with, with Paul and I said, hey, I said, I watched this show and I'd like to go find out what the Swedes are up to. Is there, is there any, you have any contacts or anybody you can put me in touch with? So he gave me contact information for an Australian guy named Shan Rafael, um, who was a station officer in Queensland. And he had just come back from Sweden where he had gone to a fire behavior instructor class. And so I got a hold of Shan and Shan said, well, I'll put you in touch with this English guy that I know that may, that he, I think I heard he's putting together a trip for a bunch of English instructors to go for an instructor's class. So he put me in touch with this English guy. Lo and behold, happens to be John Taylor, the guy who was narrating the TV show. And he was putting together a trip for a bunch of instructors in central England to go to Sweden. So I said, can I get in on this? And he said, sure. And he told me how much it was going to cost. And so I, uh, so I went to the fire chief and uh, I said, I want to go to Sweden and take a fire behavior instructor class. I have money in the training budget. I can, we can afford to do this. And he said, no, 
You're not going to Sweden on on city with city with city funds. That's not happening. So I reached out to our regional training association. I said, "Is there anything you could do to help me out?" So they they agreed to pay a portion of it, and I paid for the rest. And I told the fire chief, "I'm going on vacation. I'm going to go to Sweden." And uh, so off I went, and uh, I spent a, I spent a week in in Sweden with these English guys. And uh, that was that was interesting in and of itself. Um, the day that we were supposed to start class, England was playing Sweden in the World Cup, so we had to delay the start of class. Uh, and uh, we we got bussed down to a local pub to go watch the, the the soccer match, and they they dubbed me to be an honorary Englishman uh, since. We used to be part of England, and I had to carry the English flag into the Swedish pub. Uh, and fortunately, it was a draw, so we were able to escape with our lives. <laughs> and uh, uh, we went back, and 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 we went th- we went through training, and and they started off at the very very beginning. I mean, tabletop demonstrations, discussions of the the basics of fire science, and things that this whole concept of fuel and ventilation, limited fires and so forth. I mean, this was like the first I'd heard of this. Now it made sense because if you go back and you look at the early IFSA manuals that talked about ventilation, they had an example using a pot-bellied stove to describe how backdraft conditions develop. So we sort of got it, but we didn't connect the dots to ordinary fires. It was sort of like, oh, well, this is a special case. No, no. It's not a special case. It's normal. And so uh, I spent, like I say, I spent the week there. I, then I spent a week in England uh, kind of hanging out with these guys and, and uh, doing some, uh, some teaching with them and, and doing some experiments in their, in their training facilities and so forth uh, before I came back. And uh, when I came back, I was, I was in grad school and I was taking a class on curriculum development. So my class project was to develop a curriculum uh, to teach about fire behavior uh, for the firefighters in, in, uh, in Gresham. And uh, so about a year before, I had taken a wildland class called Inter- Intermediate Wildland Fire Behavior. So that inspired me. I said, I'm going to call this Intermediate Structural Fire Behavior, because if I said if it was basic fire behavior, nobody would want to go. But if it's intermediate, oh, well, this is higher level stuff. So uh, we spent about 50 hours on fire behavior training, and it really changed the dynamics of, of what was going on uh, in, in that particular agency at that point in time and how, how we understood fires and how we went about doing our work. And, uh, I think it had a, had a, had a really positive impact. So in the midst of that, I, uh, I got a, I got a email from Paul Grimwood and he said, I'm going to write a book, uh, about, um, uh, these methods of firefighting, would you want to be a part of that? And he says, I'm, I'm, it's going to be published by fire protection publications in Oklahoma. And I said, Oh, absolutely. I'm in. So Paul, Shan Rafael from, from Queensland, John McDonough from New South Wales and myself, uh, collaborated on writing this book called 3d firefighting. And, uh, it was, it was interesting. That was back before video conferencing and all that. And, and, you know, international telephone calls really expensive. So, uh, we use serial emails. We'd, we'd find that narrow window of time that people in England, the United States on the Pacific part of the United States and Australia were all awake. 
And then we would send emails back and forth in real time to have conversations about what it was that, that we wanted to do in the book. So um, we wrote that and it was it was published and and uh, that gave rise to the opportunity to travel uh around the world in a variety of places i think last count was 11 countries uh and uh do some teaching and figure out what it is that they did well and uh and and then try and and then try and bring some of that stuff home uh are there some things that you learned in your experience there that fit into that category that you described. Um, we're looking at things as far as the UL goes, we're looking at things that we are currently doing and not looking at some of the things that we're not doing. Yeah. I, you know, I think one of the, one of the things, and, and th- this is always just a great way to start an argument in, 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 the, in, the, in the firehouse or, or in a bar where firefighters are, uh, is the whole solid stream or straight stream versus fog pattern debate. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I used to be very passionate about that, uh, that uh, uh, the the use of of water fog was, was, you know, it made, it made a tremendous amount of, a tremendous amount of sense to me uh, in, in particular applications. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that, that maybe, puts me in a little bit different spot than some other folks is I've actually done it both ways. Uh, uh, you know, I started off in my career by my the first apparatus that I drove or the first company I was assigned to, we had a hose wagon with, uh, with, with a high pressure booster lines and, uh, uh, and, and inch and a half and two and a half and, uh, you know, use the booster lines on fires, uh, also use solid stream nozzles on fires and then, and then combination nozzles at various flow rates from, from, uh, you know, 30 gallons a minute on up to, to, to several hundred gallons a minute. Uh, and, and so kind of had a sense of, of the fact that, that, um, using water fog to, to provide a safer environment to operate in by cooling the hot gases overhead. That does, that does make sense. It's more efficient. Uh, you, you can do it with a straight stream or a solid stream. And, uh, I don't argue with anybody about it today because the evidence shows you could put fires out both ways. Um, and, and, you know, if, if somebody is very passionate in one particular direction, they're probably not going to ch- not going to change their mind easily. Uh, so, whatever it is that you're going to do, you should do it well. Uh, and uh, I think my my appreciation for the variations on things that uh, uh, I think a deficiency in the in the training arena is the fact that we only train in or, or predominantly train in fuel limited fires. And we almost always train in pre flashover environments. Uh, we never, we never deal with post flashover environments, which we oftentimes do encounter, uh, out in the real world. And so if we, if our context is dealing with unignited smoke and, and a number of fuel packages burning, that's one thing uh, when we're dealing with an environment that everything that can has been involved in that in that combustion reaction uh, that's a very different environment so I, I think in, in a lot of ways the reality is somewhere in between the two it's not this or that it's this and that 
that, uh, you know, if I have to traverse a distance of 50 or 60 feet through or under a smoke layer, uh, that the compartment or compartments that I'm moving through are not involved in fire, then dealing with that smoke layer can be done efficiently in, in one way. Uh, and then when I get to the area where I'm dealing with a post-flashover environment, I'm going to deal with that very differently. And, and so I think taking the best of both and trying to find a way, uh, uh, or as, as my, my friend John Chubb from, from Dublin, Ireland calls it, the, the universal theory of everything. Uh, you know, that, that um, you do different things at different times. And, and uh, that, to some extent, is based on what tools you have to work with. If you have solid stream nozzles, well, you do this. If you have combination nozzles, well, you can do the same thing or you can do something different. Uh, and, uh, one of them may work better in a, in, in, a, in a, a given, a given time than, than others. And, and you have to, you also have to decide how am I going to train people how to, do, how to do this and how much time is that going to take? And, and, uh, how do we fit that into all of the other things that we do? So it's simple. Right. <laughs> so that gets to a question I've, I'd like to follow up with later about uh, the role of the training officer, but let's switch gears and talk about uh, live fire training a bit. And okay. I'm interested in hearing from you about um, ideas you have for best practices for training in live fire environment, um, both with new hires, people who may have no experience whatsoever, and then incumbent personnel. All right. Um, well, I guess part of the, part of the thing with this is, is that, uh, I, I first got involved in live fire training before NFPA 1403 and, but for, uh, a great deal of luck, I could have been the guy that resulted in, 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 uh, the establishment of that, uh, of that standard rather than, than the guys from Boulder, uh, because there were some things done during, my my early years of of being involved in live fire training that you know you can read about them in line of duty death reports and we did those same things and we get away with them uh so i so i i sort of have a have a different a different perspective on that and i also recognize that uh nfpa 1403 is written in blood uh and uh i i think there's some challenges with the standard because it 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 sort of in some ways looks at all live fire training as being alike. And I think that it is not. Um, and, uh, so if we start off with, with training brand new people that have no experience, um, what I think is, is, uh, a, a good beginning for that is you need, is you need to not make it scary uh, you know, a lot of cases people, you know, they want to make it so it's really hot and it make it's really tough. And, you know, you realize, oh, you, you've got to really, you know, be special to be able to be able to do this. And I think the thing is for, uh, for new firefighters, particularly people that have, have had no exposure to this in their, in their pre fire service life, uh, this isn't, this is an unnatural act that we're asking them to do. Go inside of this building that has a fire in it. Ordinarily people want to leave when there's a fire in the building. So we, we need to we need to, to to kind of change that change that dynamic. 
Uh, so I usually will do a, do a, a demonstration burn, whether it, whether it be in a burn building or a container or some other type of a prop, where we light a where we we light some some stuff on fire and we let it it build up a build up a smoke layer and and unfortunately we we oftentimes do not get to unless we're using a container it's really tough to get to a event limited fire uh, but to to do a little bit of a demonstration and let them see okay how does the fire develop you know we 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 get this we get this plume and then we develop a ceiling jet and the smoke starts to come down. And it's warm, and we're we're kind of looking at that. And uh, I usually will give them a good brief on the front end, and then I don't talk while we're inside. I let them pay attention to the fire instead of paying attention to me. Uh, and uh, you know, I may need to counsel them on okay, remember to breathe, uh, and uh, you know, just watch what's going on. And then then we go out and we do, we'll we'll do a debrief, and that's kind of their their first exposure. I don't ask them to to deal with hose. I don't ask them to deal with nozzles or fire control or anything like that. Uh, if I'm dealing with a container and I have the ability to take the fire vent limited, uh, then I'll do that, and I'll simply control the fire behavior with the door. Or I'll have a have a, a colleague close the door, and the fire will begin to settle down. Open the door, and the fire will begin to come back up, so they can internalize that understanding of the relationship between ventilation and, and fire growth. Uh, but that's kind of the starting point, and that's about the context that they need to have at that point in time. Um, I think one of the one of the elements is is thinking about fidelity. How accurate does it have to be in order for them to learn what it is that I want them to do? And uh, uh, one of the challenges with that is we have absolutely no idea. Um, we have lots of opinions. Um, in general, it's perceived that the more realistic it is, the better. And I think it's probably a reasonable supposition at some point in time in, in that training. But in the beginnings of that, well, maybe it doesn't have to be 100% accurate. Maybe some of it you can you can do being outside the fire environment and you're just you're just looking in and you're watching what's happening to understand what's going on with that. So so I think that that there's some variability to that. Uh, I don't think that you have you you need to use live fire for teaching people basic hose handling. Um, again, because you can teach that in a different context and not expose people to toxic products and thermal insult and so forth. Uh, but at some point in time, yeah, you probably do need to show them what is the effect of applying water in a particular way and what effect what effect does that have? And that probably does need to be fairly realistic because you need to create triggers for them. If I see this, I'm going to do that. And I think a lot of times the 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 live fire training that we do, it it in a way it kind of damages people because uh, you know, if we think about, say, uh, working in a, con- in a container, single container or, or split level container that it's often referred to as a, a flashover prop, uh, which is really not. But um, when we're in there and we're practicing nozzle technique and so forth, there's an element of unreality because if this was a real fire and you could see it, you would put water on the fire and you would put it out. And yet we don't. Where we let the, the fire come overhead or or we're cooling the gases and we keep the flames away from us. You know, and I explain to people that's that's 
that's not your next fire. That's a batting cage. It's not a game of baseball. It's a batting cage. We're going to practice some techniques, but that's not a realistic context for firefighting. Now, I've also been involved in training where people don't say that. They just go in and they do it, and it's like, okay, well, so so now – now I build this picture in my mind that I'm going to, I'm going to do this even when I can see the fire. No, not so much. Uh, So, so I think that it it requires, it requires a progression. We need to, we we need to give them an introduction to fire. And I would always, when when we go in there, I'd start it off saying, okay, fire, this is the students, students, this is the fire, hang out and get acquainted. Uh, I'll be here to make sure that everybody behaves the fire and the students. And, um, next step is, is, is basically learning to apply basic nozzle techniques and so forth and deal with that in the fire environment. And, and this is where oftentimes we're constrained because maybe we don't have, uh, we don't have a lot of, uh, options in our facilities. If all we have is a single compartment prop, we're going to train in a single compartment prop. Uh, I don't think that's adequate if we want to develop skill in how do I move from my point of entry to where the fire is and and have good skills for dealing with the, the hot, smoky environment before I get there. And then what do I do once I do get there? Um, another element of context that's kind of kind of interesting, and I, I haven't figured out a complete solution to this other than acquired structures, uh, is metal containers and concrete burn buildings and ceramic lined metal burn buildings don't behave the same way as wood frame buildings with sheetrock in more than more than one perspective even if we're looking at a contents fire this those surfaces are very very different they're going to react differently to application of water than sheetrock does which is why some of the things we do in real fires, if you did them in the fire training environment, maybe they wouldn't work quite so well. Or maybe they'd give this adverse reaction. You'd say, oh, that was a stupid thing to do. I'm not going to do that again. Where in a regular building, it would be fine. So I think we have some we have some challenges with that. And I think we have some challenges with balancing uh, the issue of, of exposure to carcinogenic products in a training environment, on, on on one hand, we don't want to expose 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 people to, to toxic products. Uh, but on the other hand, if you don't train them in a realistic environment, and then you send them into real fires, then they you know is is there is the risk of a bad outcome worse? Uh, and again, I'm not sure that we completely know the answer to that. Um, some people have have gone to using gas fired props because of that and so forth and and again that is with everything i've seen to this point is a very unrealistic context does not provide you with any of the triggers that you would need other than well there's a fire um but other than that it, it's not particularly realistic um and uh and 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 presents presents a, a you know a different set of a, a different set of issues so i think that the key thing for 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 new people is to is to use a a progression that starts off with you know building building some understanding of what's going on in the fire fire environment a level of comfort of operating in a hot smoke filled uh hot smoke filled uh space uh and uh, to learn to use 
fire control methods that 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 work in a, in a, in a context that's reasonably realistic, and then that kind of progressing along. Um, I think the end point of that is 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 acquired structure training, which is not always available when you're teaching teaching new people. I think using that as the first exposure is is a, a horrible mistake uh, because there's too many things that can go sideways with that. Uh, I, I recognize some people may not have access to a training facility and maybe an acquired structure is the only thing that they have, but, but that, that is, is a very, very different sort of environment that is recognized by the standard. Uh, there are different requirements in place for acquired structures than there are in, in, uh, in, in other types of, uh, of, of purpose-built facilities. Um, when it comes to incumbents, I think one of the one of the things that uh, uh, I, I've found to be particularly useful is is making sense of a way that you can put it in a in a more realistic context. Um, uh, again, if you don't see a lot of fires, doing sort of set piece where all the lines are out and you light a fire and you go inside and you do some stuff, uh, I think that has value. But I think another thing that that has tremendous value and and is not quite as easy to do in a in an acquired structure environment as it is with with a purpose built building. Is integrating live fire training into a into a roll up drill uh, where the companies are arriving and they have to stretch their hose and they have to do all the things that they would ordinarily do. Uh, that's resource intensive because you have to have you know the 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 exterior lines and all of the all of the other resources that are required by fourteen oh three that has to be in place. Um, uh, in order to be able to do that in a, in, in a roll up context. But I've done that even as something as simple as in a, a single compartment in a, in a burn building, um, with persons reported and a three person company. And we gave them, uh, uh, you know, here in Washington state, they can operate with two in one out if they have persons reported. So we just provided sufficient additional personnel that we we met the requirements for 1403, but that company was operating in the context that you just rolled up, you've got a room in contents fire, you've got a rep- person reported inside. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had told them on the front end, they walked through the building, they knew that, yes, there was going to be a victim, it was going to be a mannequin. And, uh, uh, but when we get done, they said that was, that was pretty stressful. It was it was a lot more like a real fire than okay we're going to stretch out all the hose and we're going to you know we're going to going to put out a couple of pallets. It still was only a couple of pallets on fire, but it changed the dynamics of that uh, to to make it a little bit more realistic context. Um, I've got a lot of stuff there that provided things that I'd like to follow up on. Um, I really liked the idea that you're, you introduced about the um, attacking it tactically so that there's a progression. It's not throw them in the deep end, sink or swim, but it's acknowledging the, the uh, unnatural state of affairs when somebody may have zero experience and trying to expand the comfort zone in a way that feels safe and helps them understand the environment in which they're going to work and then making that progressively uh, more realistic. Well, I think one of the things that opened my, opened my eyes to that is I had a, I had a student when I was a chief training officer in Gresham and, and, uh, she was in recruit school and she was very, very anxious about 
being in the fire environment, particularly in an acquired structure, and, and her performance was suffering because of that. And so I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Next evolution, you and I are going to go inside with an inch and three quarter line, and uh, we're going to light the fire, and we're going to stay there. And we're going to hang out, and we're going to watch what's going on, and we can see how the fire develops. And we're going to stay there until it's time for the, for the other crews to go to work. And we're going to stay out of their way. And we're going to watch what it is they do. And we're going to have a conversation about that. So, so we, we, we did that. And we were in a room adjacent to where the fire was. Uh, we, we kind of snuck our hose line in a, a door other than the one that the crews were going to use. So we weren't in their way. And uh, we watched the whole thing. And we were just hanging out in there. And, and uh, one of the observations she made, she said, you really like it in here. And I said, oh, yes, I really do like it in here. <laughs> And uh, I said, you will too when we get done. And uh, we did that a couple of times. And then it was her turn back on the back on the attack line. And she did much better. It was like, oh, yeah, there's less mystery to this now. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, I know what's going on in here. I got to see this. And and uh, again, when I when I when I when I think about that, um, I think that's a that's a that's a that's a missing piece. Yeah. What about the, you talked about fidelity. What about frequency? You know, you often hear that nobody or few companies in this country are actually seeing enough fire to get good at fighting fire at work. In my experience, live fire training is also a, um, an event that's not very frequent. And Acquired structures, which you've also mentioned, is, is something that adds another level of difficulty to the equation, just getting access and and the preparation to stay legal with the whack and everything. But what what are your thoughts about frequency? How big of a role does live fire training optimally need to be to be um, beneficial towards building enough sets and reps in that environment that the, that you can uh, impact proficiency and ability? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I have thought about that a lot. In fact, that's one of the, the whole issue of, of, of fidelity and frequency and the like is something that, uh, when I was, was on, uh, the training fires, technical panel, uh, the advisory board served as the technical panel for that at, at, at UL, and that was one of the things that I wanted them to take on. It's not, it's not within their uh, area of expertise uh, because you need to get some some uh, psychologists, you need to get some educators, a uh, uh, whole different kind of research. That's uh, that's probably more likely uh, digging into a little bit of qualitative or mixed methods research there physical scientists, physical scientists, um, and, and they haven't, they haven't taken that one on yet. But, uh, one of the, one of the things that I did when I worked up at Central Whidbey right before coming down here to, to East County is, uh, uh, I kind of came up with this, this way of explaining the whole experience bit to the guys that I worked with. And, um, there's no real science behind it, but um, so I said, okay, let's let's look at 
Uh, and at the time, they they were running uh, a shift strength of two people. So there was a lieutenant and a firefighter. And the firefighter drove and the lieutenant was in the right front seat. And I said, okay, so let's look at this. How many offensive working fires do you have in a year? And they said, no, we think there's about six. I said, defensive jobs don't count. They count in a different way because they give you defensive experience. But if we're looking at offensive jobs. So if we look at that and we say, okay, um, there's six fires and there's three shifts. So that's two per shift. And every month you have a Kelly day, your shift works 10, your shift works 10 days, but you have a Kelly day, a vacation day and a sick day. So that means that you're only there 70% of the time. So you have 70% of two fires. Well, we can dilute that, dilute that further because if you were the pump operator, unless it's a mutual aid job, you don't, you don't get any credit for that because you're running the pump. You were getting pump operator experience, but you didn't get to be a part of anything else. So you, you kind of you kind of work your way through that, and then you multiply that times how many years you've been on the job. Well, I, I had a guy that was working for me; he'd been on the job for five years, and he had never been on the attack line in an offensive fire ever in five years, because he was most of the time he was driving the fire engine, and so there were certain things. He was involved in some live fire, a live fire demonstration, and he got to see. He said, "I've never seen that before." I'm like, "Oh, that's a problem." <laughs> uh, so, how how often is enough? I mean, the wax says you have to do it once every three years. That's not enough. Um, my take on that in in both Gresham and in in. Uh, Central Whidbey was is every three months. Now, in Gresham, we just we just burned a lot. Uh, there was a lot of guys, and we burned a lot. Um, at Central Whidbey, we didn't have that many guys, and it was, still was a struggle because you had to get enough people to to actually do it and 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 be compliant. Uh, but we gave it, a, we gave it a shot. We tried to, we tried to make it work. We did some, some multi-agency things and so forth and, and, and tried to do that. We, the, the actual number was something less than that, but it was multiple times per year. It was not big stuff, but it was something. Um, but that whole, uh, that whole thing of experience is kind of the the connection that we made where uh, I came up with the idea of ten minute training uh, for for IC number one, which is which is fifty two fires a year. Uh, now you don't oftentimes get to go inside in the video, uh, but what we did was is we we looked at that as tactical decision making for the company officer and then in some of the follow-on questions we would take it down to the level of of task level stuff like you know how are you going to do this how are you going to apply water where are you going to go what you know what sorts of things are you going to do to at least get that get that thought process going and i think if you combine um, some sound live fire training with uh, mental practice. There's been there's been a number of studies that have been done that shown that mental mental practice is as good as physical practice for some kinds of things. 
But the thing is, you have to know what it's supposed to look like in the first place. So, so I, I don't think you can only do that. But I think that if you if you combine if you combine the two of those, where uh, you're encouraging people doing video based tactical decision simulations, you encourage them to build a picture in their mind of what they're going to find when they go inside and what they're going to do about that and so forth. That that will that will reinforce that limited amount of live fire training you can do. Now, can I prove that that works? Not necessarily. I mean, anecdotally, I can tell you that it works because I I watched the transformation of of, of people's performance, uh, but uh, I can't prove it. Not not with science. Yeah, I think that um, that's be some really important research that could be done, like you mentioned, as far as um, being able to um, speak in a way that's not anecdotal, right? To have evidence that shows in order for this training to have an impact, it needs to happen with this level of frequency. Because that could drive policy, that could drive budgets, you know, uh, to help address some of those challenges that we're faced with trying to get that kind of training accomplished. Well, you know, I think part of the part of the thing is is that that um, th- that would be expensive to 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 do that research, um, and the other thing is 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 you also would have to come up with a solid methodology to see if it works in the in the real world. I mean, to to do it and to say does their performance get better or does it stay consistent in the training context, you know? So to do a certain type of live fire training and and some some mental practices, some other types of ac- activities, uh, and then follow up with an assessment with live fire training, that could that could that could be done. Um, but then does that translate when you go? to real fires mm. and, and, and how does, and how does, and how does, and how does that work? Uh, so you need a, you need a, a pretty good size. If you wanted, to, if you wanted to in essence prove it, you would have to have a pretty good size cohort and you can only test one thing at a time. So, you know, I think we're not going to see the answer to that in a, in, in a very short period of time, but I think you're right. It is very important uh, because if we if we look at that and say, you know, you need to have this much live fire training in as close to real context as possible, and you can couple that with these things, and you can get positive outcomes, uh, or you can do this much live fire training, and you can get the same outcomes. Well, if we do this much and the other things, and it's if it's as good, we reduce. We reduce cancer risk. We reduce, you know, risk of, of of other things. But I think that the challenge is is if people say, "Oh, you can replace live fire training with VR," and we don't have any any basis to to either support or refute that, it becomes a becomes a problem. And then people start doing things because, oh, well, this is easier. Well, right. is it any good? Right. Right. Well, you you actually touched on that third final question I had for you, which was when you when you mentioned your ten minute training platform. Um, I wanted to know your philosophy regarding the use of simulations as a proxy for actual fireground experience. And you 
a, a word that you used that that uh, jumped out at me was building triggers. And so uh-huh. I'm, I'm wondering, in your what's your experience in using the 10 minute training? And and, and it's and even if it's anecdotal, are you do you feel like in um, using that training tool that you're able to build triggers for for people? I, I believe so. Um, and I, I can't really take the credit for the concept. Uh, I actually stole it from the Marine Corps. Uh, there was a uh, uh, there was a couple of of documents who were written by Major John Schmidt on on tactical decision games, and um, uh, as I as I read through those about you know how do you how do you teach Marines or soldiers to make tactical decisions when they're not engaged in in war fighting and how can how can you build in essence some some synthetic experience. And uh, the tactical decision simulations, there was, a, there was a very specific methodology with some time constraints and so forth that, that, that you place people in a, in a particular situation and they had to, they had to make some decisions. And um, I had, had been involved in using simulation for uh, a long time. Um, you know, we'd used them for promotional process. Uh, back in the day, it was, you know, you projected up a 35 millimeter slide and you had an overhead projector with red and, and gray um, um, translucent plastic and, and a baking dish with salt and you'd scratch it away and, you know, to put flames and smoke. And you had this spinning wheel up there that made it flicker and so forth. It was, it was, it was, it was not a, it was not electronic in any, any way, shape or form. Or you would take a, a, photograph and you would get sharpies and you would make smoke on them and say, oh, okay, here's your fire. Uh, not terribly, not terribly realistic. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, then get involved when, when, uh, electronic simulations started to, to become available. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've used the, both of the two common, uh, simulation programs. I've used Fire Studio and I've used SimJushare. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I think, um, they have varying degrees of, of fidelity. It keeps getting better, uh, which I think is really, really cool. Uh, because one of my criticisms in, in the past has been, is that, that, you know, the, the level of, uh, visual cues that you got, uh, or the fidelity of the visual cues you get was pretty low. Oh, there's smoke coming from a window. There's flames coming from a window. Oh, the smoke is coming out the top of the door, or it's coming out the whole door. That was that was kind of the level. Uh, then then we could change velocity. Uh, okay, well that's good, and and so forth. But uh, it didn't always it didn't always quite look right. And sometimes the cues are really subtle, and. Uh, at least in the past, some of the some of the simulation software was was not real good at subtle. Um, in uh, uh, in the in in uh, um, when I when I went to when I went to Central Whidbey, I decided I needed to do something about command training, and uh, uh, ended up looking at a blue card. I was familiar with the, the concepts behind that because I had gone to Phoenix to their uh, uh, to their uh, command training center back when I worked in Gresham. I spent three days down there hanging out with John Brunacini and and uh, kind of seeing how they did that, which was which was a 
I don't want to say rudimentary, but it was it was it, it was not as as technologically advanced as, as it is today. But they were they were making it happen, and uh, uh, you know putting the putting IC number two in the in the in a command vehicle, and then uh, uh, you know they were excuse me just a second. Uh, they were, uh, they were, they were, they were, they were making it, they were making it happen. And so I said, I want to do that. So in fact, aggression, and I started to, uh, I started to build a, a CTC and, and I got about maybe about 10, 15% done. And, uh, and then I get laid off and went to Whidbey Island. So, uh, didn't get to finish that. But when I looked in a blue card, I said, you know, this is, this is pretty interesting because this uses, again, uses a progression of degrees of difficulty and it uses simulations. Um, and the fidelity was not always great, but then it was like thinking about what what degree of fidelity do I need to teach this particular system? Okay, well, it works pretty good. And the fidelity in the later sims is a lot better than the fidelity in the earlier sims. Um, and they had certain triggers that they were looking for. One was, can you tell an offensive job from a defensive job? Mm. Um, you know, and, and okay, that's not horrible horribly difficult in the in the growth sense it's the ones that are close to the middle that are a challenge um but uh i found that that worked really really well but when i when i started working on the 10 minute trainings i found that that uh occasionally i will use a simulation but most of the time i use pre-arrival video and and I scour the internet every morning looking for good pre-arrival video. Now, good doesn't necessarily mean good as in things went well, but good as in it provides some specific cues. There's a particular particular fire behavior issue or a particular tactical issue or a particular built environment issue that that's highlighted in this particular particular incident. So, I think that. Uh, you know, as as I've gone through and have done hundreds, hundreds of these ten minute trainings, uh, I think I've been doing them coming up on five years. I've been been making these things, and I do one a week for for IC number one, and I do one a month for IC number two. Uh, so that's sixty four fires a year, or sixty four incidents a year, not all fires, um, where people have to make tactical decisions, and and I think the people that have engaged with them vigorously, uh, I think they've benefited a great deal from that. I know at Central Whidbey, uh, we did them, uh, we did them at shift change, uh, and and the fire chief and author of the Gemini trainings is always in the room. So um, there was uh, there, there was a, a, a great deal of emphasis on the importance of that, and I and I and I saw a lot of benefit to that when I when I watched people work on the fire ground and when we did after actions after fires and so forth is that is that people could make connections between in essence a 10 minute training fire that they had been to and the real fire that they had just been to this was just like this other thing uh so slides in the slide tray again i think were 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 a useful thing now doesn't necessarily help build that tactical decision making or task level decision making when you're crawling down the dark smoky hallway uh, uh, but it 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 definitely helps build that sense of this is what i expect and i'm either going to find what i expect or i'm going to find something different than i expect as i progress through this incident We'll put your uh, email in the show notes and 
the, the email that I have for you, is that the one that folks that are interested in signing up for the 10 minute training that they should contact you at? Uh, it's my work email. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, they all have the district. They all have the district logo on them. The the ones that I did before have Central Whidbey's logo on them, and and uh, it's not until I retire that they'll be rebranded with my own logo on them. Okay. Uh, there is going to be a retirement. Uh, some year. Because <laughs> I thought you were some scheduled year. for retirement, and then you then you uh, <laughs> took a left turn and and uh, got a new job. Yeah, that was that was the thing. Uh, that, that whole idea that I was going to do that lasted about two weeks, and uh, uh, I, I told my wife, I says, I don't think that I'm done yet. And uh, I had I had originally previous years had a plan. Oh, I was going to retire uh, on my the day after my seventieth birthday uh, with with just over fifty years on a job, and uh, uh, and then. I I started looking around when I was at Central Whidbey and I said, you know, maybe now is the time. You know, I've got a I've got a good deputy chief. I think he's going to make a good fire chief, which hopefully that works out because he was selected as the new fire chief. Uh and uh he's got some good people to work with. Uh so maybe now it's time to go. And then I then I get thinking about that and I said, you know, I'm not done having fun. And uh so that's when the job here at East County popped up and uh, I took a look at the organization and I said, there's a lot of work to do there, which that means there's lots of fun to be had. And uh, I came down here and I, I, I shared with the board when they said, why do you want to, why do you want to come here? And I says, well, I want to have fun and I want to make a difference. And uh, uh, I said, uh, I like to work. You have a lot of work that needs to be done and I think I can make a difference. And uh, so that, uh, that that turned the page and it went to went to the next chapter in the book, and uh, we're writing that as we go along. Well, I got one final question for you, Chief, and it is um, kind of I think it's probably going to be related to what you just said, but it is how do you define personal success for you? Um, I think for me, personal success is the success of the people that I work with. Um, you know, as I, as I look around, uh, when I left, when I left central Whidbey, I had promoted everybody to the position that they currently held. And, uh, when I left the, uh, the deputy chief eventually after a, rather lengthy process. Uh, he, he, uh, he bested all comers and became the new fire chief. And, uh, you know, my success will, his success will be my success. Uh, when I left Gresham, the city was, was having very difficult times and, and, and struggling. Uh, and, uh, now, uh, People that I had as in, in the recruit academy or battalion chiefs, one of them's the assistant chief, another one's the training chief. Um, uh, so again, I look at that and I say, okay, people that I had an influence on are being successful. So that's a, that's a good thing. Um, my goal when I went to Central Whidbey was is that the organization would be better for my being there and it would be continue to get better after I left. And, and that's kind of how I'm approaching things here at East County as well, is that my, my goal is to make things better. Um, they'll be better when I leave than when I came. 
and uh, that I will prepare the people that are there to continue down that path. They may not follow the same exact footsteps that I would take, but uh, but that they will they will be able to continue to lead the organization forward and and, and do good things. So that's that's kind of how I see it as 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 being successful. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a great conversation, and we've just really um, the tip of the iceberg. There's so many different. Um, things that we've talked about today that we could go in a lot more depth. Um, but it's been a real good conversation. And as we opened this interview, I think you bring a really valuable and unique perspective just because you've been at it for so long and you've uh, seen so much um, and you clearly have a, a passion for the job and, and knowing the job. And so it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, it's been good to, good to be here. You know, you know where I am. Okay, great. All right, thank you. As we wrap up, we'd love to hear from you. If you found value in today's episode, please take 10 seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. It not only helps other fire instructors and training officers discover the show, but it also helps us to create better content for you. Simply scroll to the bottom in your favorite podcast app and hit rate and review. Your feedback means the world to us. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you in the next episode.